And one of the great travesties, uh, I'm reading a book right now, or I just finished it last night, called The History of the Boston Irish, and it just tells all these kind of anecdotal stories of how Irish people uh, put up with the Protestants for a century uh, and, and toughed it out and made it here. And so one of the stories, one of the first stories was this tremendous travesty of justice that occurred in 1805 in November when a guy was going down the, the post road, the, the road to deliver mail from Boston to New York, uh, his, um, and on the way down, he's murdered. And two Irishmen, uh, Dominic Daly and a guy named James Hannigan, uh, happened to be going down that road, and so a 14-year-old allegedly saw them going down this road. Now, he didn't see them commit a crime. There was never a weapon that was found on Daly and Hannigan, but this kid, 14-year-old Laertes Fuller, uh, was able to say they did it. And so uh, there's a lot of anti-Irish uh, fury in Massachusetts at the time, and so these men go to stand trial for two things. One, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then two, they looked guilty, which meant they were Irish and not Protestant uh, English, and so they looked guilty. Uh, And so they go to trial there. Their lawyers know that there's no case that's being presented against them, but the lawyer also knows they have no chance of being found not guilty of this crime. And so they go to trial. This 14-year-old testifies that these guys were on the road where the guy had died and that these men looked guilty. They were traveling down a highway where the crime had been committed, and they were convicted. And they were hanged and executed Um, And then it wasn't until 19, I believe 1984, that Michael Dukakis uh, declared them not guilty. It only took 179 years for these men to be declared not guilty of a crime that they clearly did not commit. And so these two guys were convicted and had their lives taken from them because of a false witness with sham evidence. Now, a witness, you know, I grew up in the South uh, where people would talk about witnessing and you witness to your faith and you witness, 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 you're an evangelist. A witness is just someone who saw something. The crime of this whole thing with these two guys was that this kid didn't witness anything. He just saw two people going down a road where a crime had happened and these guys happened to look guilty. To be a witness just means that you saw something. And you talk about exactly what you saw. A witness is a person who testifies to what he or she has seen. So evangelism at its core is sharing good news. It's sharing your witness of having experienced the good news of the gospel. When a person, when a Christian bears witness or when a Christian witnesses to what they believe, they're sharing the evidence of what they've seen or read in the Bible and experienced personally. So you hear all these words like, I think about TBN, the, I can't remember, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, that Christian channel in the 80s that had Jim Baker and people going on TV and doing all this weird stuff. And when you start talking about testifying or evangelism, it just conjures up women with big hair and men crying and asking for money. Uh, but that is not what testifying and evangelizing is. Hopefully, when we bear witness It's just talking about what we've seen and experienced in God doing in our life through Christ. So the title of today's message, God, if you'll go to this one, is Amateur Evangelist. Because I bet that none of us in here feel like we're just so fluent in the gospel that we're able to just 
out our words and tell people about Jesus all the time. If you're like me, you're very, you can be very nervous and we can be sheepish. Am I going to say the right things? Am I going to offend this person? Is our relationship going to fall apart? What's going to happen? It's tough. It can be scary. We're afraid that we're going to lose a relationship. I went out the other night with a friend and was talking with him about the gospel. And afterwards, I texted him and I was like, I hope that our relationship uh, is a bridge strong enough that it can carry the weight of the conversation that we just had. Because I knew it made him very uncomfortable. Uh, And he said, we're good. In fact, I look forward to talking more about this with you some other time. By the, some other time, by the way, he meant like months down the road. No time uh, soon, and that's fine. I shared a lot with him that night. So often we just want to be a silent witness. You know, I just want to be a silent witness. I want to let my actions speak louder than my words, but that's not an option. Scott, it's, um, if you'll scroll down under uh, like a row below that, it'll be there. You don't see it? I promise it's there. Don't go to that. I do this. I set you up for failure every week. And yet you keep coming back. It's amazing. God is good. So God has called us to speak up with our words and with our lives. We may be amateurs, but a a resume of sharing the gospel is irrelevant if we're just talking about what we've seen and heard. You might say, well, I've got this great spiritual resume. Well, God doesn't need our spiritual resumes. He just needs us to talk about what we've seen and heard. And God doesn't need, if we say, I've got no spiritual resume. I've been a Christian for about five minutes, and I'm a bad one, and I don't know what I'm doing at it. It doesn't matter if we're just talking about what we've seen and heard and experienced. So I'm going to read Titus 3, uh, 1 through 8. If you've got one of the paper Bibles, uh, if you've got the small print, it's page 579. If you've got the large print, it's page 1100. Here we go. Paul is writing to Titus uh, on the island of Crete, and he's telling them about how to raise up healthy churches, healthy pastors, and now he's going to talk about how to raise up people who are healthy evangelists, even though they're amateurs at all of this. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Strong words. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul starts by urging Titus as he's raising up these pastors and training Christians to remind them of some things when it comes to relating to neighbors and acquaintances and government. He's even talking about how they're going to be citizens on the, on the island. Uh, he's going to talk about how they're going to relate to culture and just a couple of verses and outsiders and unbelievers. He's going to talk about all of that. Now, up to this point, he's talked about us being um, amateur pastors. Or he's talked about how we're going to relate to one another. Remember in 2, he said, now the older men... You teach the older men this and teach the older women this and the older women teach the younger women this. And then the younger men, even though you're a younger man, you teach them this. It's all to this point been pretty internal. 
But now he's going to begin to push out in the community and talk about how they're to live in their communities. And it starts um, with our lives. And he, and, he, and he says, here are the things, the very practical things that you're going to live in the neighborhood that you need to do. And these are pretty transferable. If you live in Charlestown or North End or Somerville or Andover or wherever you come from today, these things are pretty true for us today. And it's not less than this. Uh, it's not more than this necessarily. It's a lot more than this, but it's not less than this. And here they are. One, he says, be submissive to governing authorities. Uh, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Uh, this would be being good citizens on the local and national level. We give to Caesar, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, what is Caesar's, and we give to God what is God's. Uh, we see all in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Romans 13 and Matthew 22, uh, Jesus, Paul, Peter, the church leaders calling us to be, as Christians, citizens of two kingdoms. We, live in, we reside in two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And in the kingdom of man, we're supposed to live as good citizens. So Christians should be good citizens Christians should register to vote. Christians should go and vote. Christians should follow the laws. They should, we should, Christians should make the culture better. You hear people talk all the time quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope and a future to prosper you and not harm you. The best verses in Jeremiah 29 are in verses 4 through 7, where God says, hey, you're living in a foreign country right now and you're not happy, but be good citizens of that place. Plant gardens, raise your kids to follow God, give them in marriage, uh, be good citizens, because in the prosperity of the country where you're in exile, you will find your own prosperity. And so as Christians, we are to be good citizens and make culture better. Christians are not anarchists. We're not rebels. We make culture better. Second thing he says, be obedient. He's not talking here about being obedient to God. He's talking about being obedient to the authorities in our life, to bosses, to emperors, or in our case, the president and governing authorities, uh, to governors, to community leaders. We obey our leaders because our citizenship is in heaven. And part of having dual citizenship means that being a good citizen here means we're a good citizen here. Part of following God's authority is following the man-made authorities that God has put over us as long as they don't conflict with God's law. He says, be ready for every good work. This is comprehensive. Be ready to serve. Be ready to do whatever it takes every time. Speak evil of no one. Again, comprehensive. It doesn't say, hey, you can talk bad about these people, but then speak good of these people. Like, you know, life would be much easier if we could just like the people we like and hate the people we hate. That is not the gospel, unfortunately. Wouldn't that be great? Like, that would be so great. Jesus gave me permission to hate all of you people, but these people I get to like. That's not how it works. And Titus is called to tell them, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Not just the ones we like, agree with, or who speak well of us. We live in a culture because of Twitter and all other uh, social media stuff where it's so easy to hate 50% of the people. Like I saw somebody posted something the other day in the town we moved from. And I mean, you just went on. It was 230 something uh, like comments and reply to this thing. And uh, probably if there were 230, 115 were, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And the other 115 were, this is the antichrist and you're all going to die. Like, it's like, this is kind of extreme. We as Christians don't have that luxury, luxury to just be polarizing. We're to speak evil of no one, 
Paul says. He goes on, he says, avoid quarreling. Uh, one writer said, this is the sweet reasonableness that refuses to hold a grudge and that also gives others the benefit of the doubt. That's one thing that God began to work on me about a few years ago was giving people the benefit of the doubt. It is really hard. I don't know how, if that's easy for you or not. Um, as best I can, by God's grace, when possible, I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt because I believe that's what God does with me. I'm thankful that God doesn't look at me and all my motives and be like, you are such a disgusting slob. What is wrong with you? Get it together. I don't have the luxury in light of the gospel and what God's done for me to do the same thing. He says, finally, be gentle and show perfect courtesy, a.k.a. show humility Live with joy. Last week we gave an acronym for grace that I'd heard when I was a teenager. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's more complicated than that, infinitely, but it's a nice acronym. Here's a life of joy. is putting Jesus first, others second, and yourself third. You want to find joy in your life like deep, like a deep well of satisfaction and peace with life? Put Jesus first, others second, yourself third. Put God then others, and then you decrease so that others can increase. I'll tell you, I failed at that this week, by the way, sitting in the notes, which is always dangerous. Whoa. Um, it's always dangerous, but we, I was in a situation, and we left, and Natalie, uh, who God speaks through so well, when we left this place, she was like, you were, you were shorter with that person than you should have been. And I love you, but you can do better than that. You know, and it was good. I didn't like it at first, but do you ever like receive some news you don't like, but you're like, oh, that's right. Uh, it's like the turn of the dagger. It's like, oh, you're right. We don't get that. I don't get that right all the time. Maybe you do. I, it's it, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy requires the work of the Holy Spirit of God in us, helping us do those things. So why do we do that stuff? Let's, uh, if you still got your Bible open, let me tell you why we do it. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. The reason that we do all of those things is because we are different people than we used to be. The Bible says that we were once foolish. And so... Um, these, uh, now it's easy for us as Christians to say, now this is what we used to be. I can admit what, I've, what I used to be. I can admit where God uh, is taking me and where I've still got room to grow. It seems judgmental to look and say, now this is where most people around you are who don't follow Jesus. That feels hateful to, to try to differentiate. Aren't we all the same? The truth is, theologically, we're not all the same. People who don't follow Jesus are in a different place with a different destiny and a different master than those who do follow Jesus. And so not correctly diagnosing the problem of our standing with God is like going to a doctor and the doctor seeing that we have cancer but telling us everything is going to be great. It's going to be all right. It's not helpful. And so this is uh, verse 3 shows us where other people are who whose hearts are enslaved uh, to sin and the effects that that slavery has on their lives. It says they're foolish. Uh, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Psalm 14.1 says, there's no one who does good. A pre-Christian, someone who does not yet follow Jesus, um, is foolish. Their life says there is no God or that they are self-sovereign 
or serve a God of their own understanding, not the God of Scripture. It's the first trait of someone who doesn't follow Jesus. And that's what we were. Two, it says they're disobedient, self-serving, self-centered, self-ruling, God-defiant. Three, they're deceived. They're led astray toward a cliff where at the bottom of the cliff is the most evil, torturous destiny you can imagine. Now, I love my neighbors. I don't want to think about this being where my neighbors are spiritually. But biblically, this is where they are and where I was. It doesn't give me arrogance. It gives me a a sober sense of what's going on. And it should do the same for all of us. Four, they're enslaved. Or three, they're deceived. Oh, I did that one. Four, they're enslaved by passions and pleasures. Um, I've had lost people who I've pastored who've said to me, you're just being prudish. I am so free. I am free. Uh, I've had people who are doing drugs say, man, I am so free in the drugs I'm doing. I've had people who are sleeping around their spouses uh, who are coming to our churches. They're like, man, I am so free sleeping with this man who is not my husband. I've had people who are cheating in their businesses and making tons of money who are like, man, I am so free. This is amazing. I am robbing everybody and making tons of money, and it's a wonderful life. Um, or they would say, I don't believe the Bible. I'm free from this part of the Bible. Like, you know, we do like Thomas Jefferson did where we kind of pick and choose the parts we like and then tear out mentally the parts that we don't like. I've had people say that I'm prudish because uh, I believe the Bible or they're so smart and enlightened and I'm so dumb and simple and old-fashioned. And the, the truth is sin, like doing, embracing all of those, is fun. And pleasurable for a season. Here's a theology lesson. Sin feels good. If it didn't, it would go out of business. Sin's fun. Like, there are times where I honk my horn, not the nice, gentle honk of, can you go? But I'll do the long honk, you know, that one. That feels nice. It feels empowering. You know, like, if you, you do that, like, it feels great. I'll cut someone off in traffic. It feels I feel vindicated. It's like a shot of something courses through my veins and I feel stronger and better. Listen, sin feels good. If it didn't feel good, no one would do it. It would go out of business. But the truth is, 100% of the time, when we realize the sins we thought we were in control of, they always come to control us. That anger, when I lay on the horn, that anger comes to control me. And it begins to seep into other parts of my life. That person who thinks, man, I'm just sleeping around on my husband, not a big deal, it's okay, that begins to encroach on other parts of her life. It always feels good. The problem with sin is it costs us more than we want to pay, it takes us further than we intend to stray, and it costs us more than we ever intended to pay. Every time. Sin will take us further uh, it costs us more than we want to pay, takes us further than we ever intended to stray, and costs us more than we want to pay, 100% of the time. Sin and slaves, that's what it does. The fifth thing that he says in verse 3 is we passed our days in malice and envy. Envy is what, envy happens when we want what's not ours. Envy is a trait. It's a trait of our hearts. When we envy someone, that's a trait. It's not a condition. Um, a condition can be met You can meet a condition. You cannot meet a trait. A trait as who we are. Envy is a trait in a person cannot be satisfied. The only cure for the envious among us is for our hearts to be changed by the power of the gospel. 
And then he says the sixth trait in verse 3 is that we hated and detested other people. Hating is an attitude. Detest, detesting is hate and action. These are the lives that we live before the gospel. These are the lives that God is peeling away from us and the power of the Holy Spirit. And these are the traits, unfortunately, of 90-something percent maybe, I don't know, I'm not God, of the people who live around us, who we work around and who we do life around, uh, who are lost and enslaved to sin. Now, some people are going to object to that immediately, right offhand, and say, well, that's my mom you're talking about. Better not talk about my mom. Or that's, that's, um, that's my best friend. They don't follow Jesus, and you're sitting here making that, saying they're foolish, malicious, deceived, and enslaved. And some people might even say, well, that's me, and that makes me really uncomfortable that you're talking about me like that. How dare you do that? To be frank, like when we say that, when someone says that, they're exhibiting the very traits that we just talked about. To, to think that way shows foolishness, deceit, and being enslaved. I pastored a guy, I think about, as I was writing this out, I thought about this guy, and he thought he was so smart, and he thought that, I, that as his pastor, I was so dumb, and it was like I had 20% of the knowledge, but he had 100% of the knowledge, and his 80% that I didn't have allowed him to somehow do and live uh, on Sunday like he followed Jesus, and the other days like God didn't even exist, but he was so smart, he knew better. And now he lives like an atheist. And, he, and there's no evidence of God's work in his life. Which creates a long conversation about what was going on that whole time. But all I can say at the end of it is that he is enslaved and deceived and living like there is no God. And that will always end in disaster. From our perspective, it's easy to come to those tough conclusions. But from God's perspective, when the consequence of sin and unbelief was paid for by his son, Jesus, on the cross, how could, we come to any, how could he come to any other conclusion that this is so damning? It cost his son. From the perspective of the gospel, we were certainly these things. The lost person certainly is these things. And we're deceiving ourselves and others if we're minimizing or denying the death of Jesus, saying it's anything less than this. So what do we do with this? What's the way forward? What's our witness? What are we even supposed to tell people who are enslaved to all of that? I think there's four things. If you're going to write any things down today, it'll be these next four things. So, uh, well, I'm going to give you two starters. Here they are. You found it. Amazing. Um, who a lost person, will you go to the one before this one? Who you were is not who you are. We forget this as Christians. Who you were before the gospel is not who you are today. So when we hear you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, malicious, evil, that's not who we are anymore. It might be what we do at times, but it's not who we are. If you struggle with self-loathing, how many of you beat yourself up much more than God does? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, but thanks. I knew it would be you two. I knew it would be the two of you. Um, if you struggle with self-loathing or self-punishing you are saying Jesus' death was not enough. You're saying his death covered 90% or 99% or 51% of your sin, but you are wiser and holier than God, and you need to take care of the rest. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're not a sinner. The Bible says you're a saint, and that is not your identity. The gospel has set you free. Don't forget who you were, but agree with the gospel and identify it as the saint that God has called you, not a condemned sinner. If you'll go to the next one now. 
Scott. Second thing, though, and this is more painful, that list that I gave is who your lost friends, relatives, neighbors, and, and co-humans are, but it's not who they have to be. It's not who they have to be. Uh, Matt and Rachel and I were talking just a few minutes ago about um, because our city is very liberal and very open-minded, people will let you talk about what you believe. So the gap from liberalism to, the go- to sharing the gospel is often not that far. But the gap from presenting the gospel to someone accepting the gospel is very far. It's a huge leap of faith for someone to make. But where someone is today and where they have to end up are not the same things. It's just a big jump for them. And we need to pray people into the kingdom and love people into the kingdom and share the gospel with people as as they come into the kingdom. The good news of the gospel is that no one is beyond saving And you and I are exhibit A on that one. We're exhibit A on that one. Nobody is beyond the love of God. So in light of those truths, how does God feel about us? What's he done? As a bunch of amateur evangelists, what does this have to do with our testimony or message about God? Now, I'm going to tell you four things from Titus 3, 4 through 7. Here they are. If you'll go to the next one, this will be somewhat quick. First thing, God cares for us. This is your first witness. God cares for us. Titus says, It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Christian, God cares for you. He loves you. God doesn't, contrary to what our culture believes, God does not have some people he loves, like where he loves Americans and he loves straight people and he loves poor people and he loves religious people, while some others he hates. That's not how the gospel works. God cares for everyone, regardless of their nationality, their skin color, their sexual orientation, their bank account, their religious upbringing, or anything else. God cares for everyone. God cares so much that he sent Jesus, his only son, uh, that none should perish, but all, by believing the gospel and turning from sin, can have eternal life. We sang this song when I was a kid. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. God cares for everyone. That's our first, that's our lead-in on witnessing and sharing our faith. God cares for us. So we can say, you can tell others, God cares for you. God cares for you. And you can say, I know God cares because I've experienced his care in blank. I know God cares for me because when I felt like a sinner, God received me. I know God cares for me because when a relative died, God was there for me. I know God cares for me because I've experienced his care in my life. So people um, have heard that God doesn't care. And we've got to tell them that he loves them, he cares, he's gracious. Tell them God cares and tell people a story when you experience his care. The second part of our witness, the, the second sort of thing that we can talk about that we've seen, even if we don't know how to witness, is this one. Go for it, Scott. God in grace has saved us. That verse goes on and it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God making us new. Christian, God saved you. It did not happen by effort. Mallory's the newest follower of Jesus in our church. We had a great conversation. She says, I want to be born again. And and we did that. Now, Mallory didn't do a bunch of religious deeds to become God's part of God's family. She asked God to save her, and he did in grace. It was the, one of the coolest moments of 2019 for me. It wasn't 
It's not us that does it. It's God who does it for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved, through faith. All this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. All we did was believe. That's all we did. I remember the day you became a Christian. You didn't jump through a bunch of religious hoops. You believed. You followed uh, God and surrendered your life to him. God saved. God gave the gift. God disregarded our sham good works and saved us. It was a gift. And the thing we do with gifts is we receive them and tell others about them. So you tell others, God will save you. This can be the second part of your witness. In grace, God will save you. I know because I experienced God's grace and salvation in my life. You could say when I didn't save myself, when I couldn't save myself or bring myself peace with God, God did that. God did it. People have heard that good deeds save, that religion saves, that being a good person saves. Tell people how God saved you when you weren't good, but were helpless and lost in sin. It may sound crazy, but that's the gospel. We got nothing else. Third thing I think you could say that's part of your witness. You can say God indwells and empowers me. Paul said, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Christian, God's Spirit lives in you. God exists as Trinity. There's God the Father in heaven, God the Son who came to earth, Jesus lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, rose victoriously, ascended to heaven where he's ruling and reigning, and one day he will come again to put everything that's broken right and back together and to reign forever. And then the third part of the Trinity, the third part of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit who is God living in us. God, uh, his spirit convicts us, emboldens us, urges us, steers us, leads us, teaches us. We will never hear his spirit guide us towards sin or unbelief. Anything God calls us to do, believe, become, uh, his spirit will help us accomplish. So you can tell others God will indwell you and empower you. And then tell them of a, and, and tell them you don't have to clean up. I've known people, I've had people say, now I'm going to become a Christian when I quit smoking. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm going to become a Christian when, my, when I become a better husband. You can't become a better husband. That's what got you in this mess. I'm going to become a Christian when I quit watching whatever they're watching. These are all just silly, nonsensical ideas. God's Spirit will indwell us and empower us to become who we were made to become. The idea, the, the idea of the Holy Spirit freaks people out. I was talking with a friend the other day. I was like, you need to follow Jesus. And she said... I don't think I can do it. I said, why? She goes, I don't want to be born again. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I got a friend who's born again, and she goes to church, and she's like Medea shouting hallelujah, you know, and she's crazy and dancing around arms. She's like, I don't want to become crazy. I'm like, that's not how this works. But she doesn't know that. Um, People think that the Holy Spirit makes them possessed or turns them into charismaniacs. That's what we used to call them, who dance and shout and say all this weird stuff. And then they lose their personalities, become like these Jesus weirdo robots. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't come into you. This is so good. Like if you can mentally remember this, this is good. The Holy Spirit does not come into you to turn you into someone else. He comes into you to help you become who you were created to be. Sin will keep you from realizing your full destiny. That, that is one byproduct that makes it enslaving. The, sin, the Spirit sets us free, 
and allows Carson to become exactly who Carson uh, was born to be, allows Annie to become exactly who Annie was born to be, allows Vaskin to become exactly who Vaskin was born to be, allows you to become exactly who God created and intended for you to be. So you can tell people, God will live in you. He will change you. He will help you live the Christian life of faith from start to finish. Then tell them how God has saved you and dwells you and changed you and is changing you. Scott, if you'll go to the fourth one. And then the other thing it says is God comforts us. It says, so being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God will not baby you, but he will comfort you. He declares you not guilty. He graces us. He makes us heirs. The grave is not the end. Life in Christ is eternal and abundant, forever and meaningful. So you can tell others, God will comfort you. I know this because he has comforted me. And tell them a time when you felt condemned, but God came with freedom. Tell them of a time when knowing God has a plan for your life that's meaningful here and eternal there gave you hope and power and faith. Tell them boldly and unapologetically that life is eternal and most meaningful when it's lived in Christ. You have a gospel message because you've seen some things, eternal things, radical things in Christ. You have a witness. You may not yet be fluent in sharing it, but you may get nervous about being on the witness stand for your faith, um, but you have a story to tell because you have a Savior who has acted for you, and you have evidence. The Bible is great evidence. Your life's probably the best evidence. Your life's probably the best evidence of what God has done, and you can say, this is what God has done in me. So grab your uh, bulletin thing and a pen. We're going to take a quiz. There's a ton of false witnesses about Jesus and a ton of people who think they saw something or heard something but didn't. We can set the story straight and imagine what will happen as we do. Imagine what will happen when the gospel's care will do for those. Um, imagine what the gospel's care will do for those who feel forgotten or rejected. Imagine what the gospel's saving will do for those who feel lost. Imagine what the gospel's indwelling and empowering will do for those who feel hopeless before their habits, hurts, and hang-ups. Imagine what the gospel's comfort will do for those who feel hopeless and needy. Take a quiz. Here we go. Uh, if, if the answer is not true at all, you're going to put one. If you're unsure, not certain, put three. And if this is totally true, you say this is true of me, totally true of me, put five. So one, not true at all. Three, not sure. Five, totally true. I've got eight questions. Here we are. One, uh, I know I uh, was a sinner whose sin is against God. If you know you're a sinner, totally agree with that. Put five. If you're like, that's not true at all. I'm perfect. Uh, put one. If you're not sure about that, put three. Number two, I believe Jesus died for me to save me from my sins. One to five. Number three, I have friends or family members who I know are far from God right now. One to five. Total, one being not true at all. Three, unsure. Five, totally true. Number four, I can think of a time when God cared for me. Not true, unsure, totally true. Fifth one. I can remember when I asked God for forgiveness of sins and God saved me. Next one. I believe God lives in me and I've felt his spirit at work in my life before. Not true, unsure, or totally true. I can remember a time when God comforted me. Can you think of a time when God comforted you? You can also put four and two, by the way, if that's kind of mostly true. Uh, 
And then the last one. I have a friend, coworker, neighbor who came to my mind as I was hearing this today. Totally untrue. Can't, not sure if I thought about anybody or that's really true. Total it up. Hope you're good at math. If not, if you get your phone out, we'll know you're terrible at math. And that will be totally true. How many of you, just sort of lift a finger. How many of you scored 30 or more? Yeah, okay. Wow. Almost everybody. How many, if you score, all right, so let me say this. If you scored 30 or more, you are much more equipped to share, to bear witness than you think you are. If you can, if those things are true, you're good to go. Like you've seen God do some things and you can talk about what you've seen and experienced. If you scored in the 20s, be reminded that God equips called people. And recall question six where I said, I believe God lives in me and have felt his spirit at work in my life. If you're a Christian, that statement, in fact, is totally true, whether you necessarily feel it all the times or not. And know that you don't have to have it all together to have all the answers. You don't have to know everything. You just talk about what you've seen. If you scored in the teens, is that because you're more critical than God is? Or is it because you haven't experienced the gospel personally? If you scored eight, congratulations. You just blew my mind. And please accept the gospel today and become a Christian. Here's what I want you to do. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember all God has done for you and in you. And then write down, at some point, maybe now, If you did have a friend who came to mind, maybe later, write down the name of one friend far from Jesus in need of witness. Then I want you to do these things. If you're yep, you're right here. I want you to write down the name of a friend, family member, neighbor, acquaintance who is far from God. And I want you, I want us to make a commitment to do some things. One, pray for him or her one time per week for the next five weeks. I'll post this slide on social media if you don't get this down. One time per week for the next five weeks. Two, Pray that God will send someone into his or her life to share the gospel uh, with him or her and invite him or her to church. Send some type of invitation into this person's life. My dad was not a believer, and I tried to share the gospel with my dad for years. It did not go well, so I just started praying God would send some man into my dad's life who would love him and share the gospel with him. And God answered that prayer, and my dad eventually became a Christian. I think God loves that prayer. Three, pray for boldness and discernment. Uh, Don't force it, but don't let fear win the day if God calls you to share with them. And then four, look for an opportunity to be the answer to your own prayer, bearing witness to what you've seen and heard and experienced in the gospel. No pressure. The only pressure is, man, begin to pick one person far from God and let's start praying for them once a week. I think Nat and I were talking about this the other day. We were saying... There are some prayers that God loves to answer. I think the prayer, God give me more chances to share what I believe with people. I think God would like for, I think he would like to answer that prayer. So let's pray. God, give us opportunities to share the gospel with people who are far from you.